welcome to this episode of the Multicultural Middle Ages, a podcast brought to you by the Graduate Student Committee of the Medieval Academy of America. My name is Liam Waters. And I'm Ana Nunez. And we will be your hosts today as we discuss the relationship between physical material and people during the Middle Ages, the impact this relationship has in distinguishing the modern from the pre-modern, and the ways materialism continues to affect socio-political discourse today. So before we get started, I believe you have an anecdote, or maybe it was more of a, a humorous tidbit that starts to get at what we'll be discussing today. So do you want to go ahead and share that? Yeah, yeah, really quite apropos. So uh, in talking to, to some friends, they sent me this uh, meme that I remember even when I, I was in high school circulating, and which I think uh, quite a few of our, our listeners have probably seen in some capacity. And this, uh, this, this meme is a Venn diagram with two circles overlapping. And I should stress that the, the, the overlap between these two circles is quite small. Uh, <laughs> and on the left-hand circle, we have some text written that says what the author meant. And in the other circle, we have some text that says what your English teacher thinks the author meant. And underneath all of this, we have, for instance, the curtains were blue. What your English teacher thinks. The curtains represent the immense depression of uh, the character and his lack of will to carry on. Then what the author actually meant. The curtains were blue. So <laughs> I think this I think this meme is uh, is quite funny. And although there are many debates that you can find up on, on YouTube and elsewhere on the uh, internet about the, the you know literary theory surrounding this particular meme, which I, th mm. I found funny. Um, I think it's quite apropos to what we're going to be talking about today, which is um, talking about material, right? Talking about material in literature, talking about uh, material mm -hmm. in history. And what's interesting uh, to me and what I think cuts to the heart of what we'll be talking about today is uh, that that none of these conversations surrounding this meme ever take a moment to pause and say, okay, well, what about considering the blue curtains on their own terms? What does right. it, what does it mean that the curtains are are blue? You know, what kind of fabric are are, are these curtains? How are the characters interacting with the curtains, mm -hmm. or how are the curtains forcing the characters to interact with them? Um, you know, what, what type of dye is being used and what does that mean about the, you know, the, the, the class of uh, the home that we're, these curtains are in. So there are many questions that, that pop up just from asking uh, why the curtains are there and, and how, they're, how they're assembled. Yeah, so I think what we'll be talking about today then will be an exploration as it were, of blue curtains and a discussion defending the blue curtains as the main topic of inquiry. And yeah, now yeah. perhaps we'll have to include that meme in our bibliography. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> or indeed have a, have a subtitle for our uh, episode, In Defense of the Blue Curtains. <laughs> Uh, but first, allow us to introduce ourselves. So, Anna, if you would like to tell us a little bit about uh, who you are and what you do. Yeah, I'll start us off. So I'm a PhD candidate in the history department at Stanford, and I'm working on a dissertation about queenship in the 12th and 13th century Kingdom of Jerusalem. And I'm approaching these women from the perspective of their material culture, asking how these queens of Jerusalem functioned politically through art and architecture, and how in turn 
these objects and spaces constructed their queenly power. And I'm excited to be here with you, Liam, and I'll turn it over to you for your introduction. Yeah, well, thank you very much. Well, I'm just across uh, the bay uh, from Stanford, <laughs> so I'm a PhD candidate in the Department of Scandinavian Studies and uh, program in Medieval Studies at the University of California, Berkeley. Uh, my dissertation focuses on the construction of space in the Old Norse mythological corpus, how literary environments and materials reflect the ideologies of the medieval cultures which produce them, and asking how the objects of mythological narratives can both obscure and clarify subject-object relationships. So before jumping into a discussion of the applications of new materialism in our own work, We'll go ahead and start with a working definition of what new materialism is. So our working definition here. New materialism, sometimes referred to as the material turn, is an interdisciplinary approach that foregrounds material as the primary subject of inquiry. This stands in contrast to other academic disciplines which focus on the linguistic or the symbolic. Rather than viewing matter as inert, passive or merely a reflection of people, institutions, and societies, new materialism looks at matter as animate, as active, and as constructing those same people, institutions, and societies. And finally, new materialism looks at the agency of objects. It asks what work things can do. It pushes us not inward to the psyche of the individual, but rather outward to how objects are assembled and the networks they generate. Anna, perhaps one of the places we can begin is discussing the ways in which you use material in your own study. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Great. So, and I think it'll be interesting staying in conversation with you, Liam, because as we've noted in our introductions, we're in different departments. So I'm in history and you're in Scandinavian literature and studies. So I think we have slightly different applications of a material turn or of this new materialism, which I think speaks to the capaciousness of this methodology and the different sort of sub-articulations and sub-methodologies that we can employ. So my work is on the Kingdom of Jerusalem, specifically regnant queenship in the 12th and early 13th century Kingdom of Jerusalem. So between 1131 and 1228, five women ruled as reigning monarchs, which is a large number of reigning queens, not just if one looks in the Latin East and the Latin West, but also in the context of a more global Middle Ages. So Jerusalem had five reigning queens, most famously Queen Melisande, but there was also Sybil, Isabella I, Maria, and Isabella II, also known as Yolanda of Brienne. And so my dissertation explores how these women accessed and exercised power, how their queenship differed before and after 1187, so the year Jerusalem surrendered to Saladin and the Latins were dislocated from Jerusalem, and then what these women as a unique group might be able to tell us both about the Kingdom of Jerusalem and medieval queenship more broadly. And so as much as the evidence allows, my approach is to examine these reigning queens from the perspective of material culture, so from the perspective of art and architecture. And this is where the application of new materialism really comes into play. 
So here I'm interested in identifying the objects and spaces we can connect to these women, and then combining a reflectionist and constructionist approach. And so by this, I mean asking what different objects and spaces tell us about the priorities of these queens. So this is the reflectionist approach, a reflection of their political agendas. But then also asking how these objects and spaces manifested specific political meanings, connected different peoples and places, and forged links in expansive networks. And this is the more constructionist approach. And it's in this latter exploration that new materialism really comes to the fore. So the material culture I'm looking at exists as both physical objects and spaces, as well as textual objects and spaces. So textual references or drawings of objects and spaces that unfortunately no longer exist. Um, but in looking at both these physical objects and spaces and the textual ones, I'm looking at church renovations, monastic foundations, manuscripts, and relics. And I think, Liam, for the purposes of our conversation today, I'll really focus on relics as an object class, I think, especially ripe for a new materialist approach and our conversation today from a new materialist lens. So that's one way in terms of looking at material culture, getting at the lives of these women and seeing how objects and spaces were integral in this process and in this history. So you're in a different department. How is yeah. this coming to play out in the work you've done? Yeah, so yeah, different departments, uh, different different um, time periods that we're both uh, interested in. So it, it's it, I think we have quite a, an interesting discussion ahead of us about the the applicability, or I suppose uh, the wide ranging applicability of new materialism. Myself, I'm I'm on the uh, opposite end of things, right? So. Uh, Obviously, things like uh, historical context are important, but I focus mostly on literature and uh, mythological and uh, legendary corpuses within medieval Scandinavia. And two of the things that I'm most interested in discussing and, and analyzing within my own, my own research is, one, the way in which objects affect uh, characters within a given narrative. And, and usually we refer to this as, as agency, right? So the ways in which an object can, can affect us, uh, the way in which an object sort of has power within, within its own right, both because of its sort of uh, physical form, the way that it occupies space, um, or the ways in which uh, it forces a specific set of actions or interactions um, uh, for humans, um, or I guess at the literary level for, for characters. Mm. Uh, the other part of that is also discussing uh, assemblages. Uh, and this, is, this has been a topic that's been widely discussed within materialist study now uh, for decades. Um, the most prominent scholar probably who has discussed assemblages this far is uh, Jane, ba uh, Jane Bennett, uh, who talks about how the assemblage of matter gives objects a type of, of vibrancy, right? So a, a type of agency because objects are gathering together of, of different um, 
different constituent parts, right? So a good example of that uh, might be uh, the ways in which um, we can define uh, our, our, our own beings, our own bodies, right? We are an assemblage of, of many different things. Um, we can talk about our bodies as being flesh and bone and blood, um, but bodies as sort of physical objects require an assembling of a multitude of different uh, matter to, to, to function, right? We have to eat, we have to drink, right? And so in this way, we're, we're constantly assembling and reassembling uh, ourselves. And the way in which that physical matter manifests itself is, you know, it has a direct effect on us right if we uh if we eat food all of a sudden we have uh energy to do things right if we if we don't eat and we don't drink all of a sudden we are, we're drained of our capacity uh for action so i'm really interested uh in the interplay of uh objects and assemblage in creating this type of uh agency so assemblage and agency they kind of go hand in hand mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'm really struck by this word assemblage, and I'm thinking in my own work, I think this applies too. So perhaps here is an overlap of us and our different pockets of medieval studies really getting at something similar. So if I think of assemblage, one of the types of objects I'm looking at when it comes to these reigning queens of Jerusalem um, are relics. So relics that they might have used or particularly gifted. So if we think of assemblage there, we could talk about a very material material assemblage by which i mean the gold or the gems or the bone fragments the inscriptions all of that material assembling and coming together in the physical form of the relic slash reliquary but then we could also talk about assemblage bringing together also different people different ideas so assembling or gathering in which is another word we can find in the literature of gatherings or being or of an object as a gatherer, gathering a queen who sends it to a monastery in Italy and gathering an ideology of Christian power, of royal power, of the true cross as this symbol of victory and salvation. So multiple gatherings coming into place in this one object. So I wonder in your work in literature, what examples you have of objects that are doing this work of assembling or of gathering things and people and ideas and all of that into itself. Yeah, so that's a it's a great question, and and in fact, this this uh, word that you're using, gathering, in in conjunction with um, assembling, is 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 really important. I think um, so. A really, I think, poignant example of assemblage in, in my disciplinary focus um, is it, well, it's, it's simultaneously a historical element and a literary um, element. So in medieval Scandinavia and in medieval Iceland in particular, we have this political institution called the thing, right? It's actually where etymologically we get our word in English thing. Um, and in medieval Iceland, uh, when all of these people from various uh, parts of Scandinavia, Norway, Denmark, Sweden, where have you, as well as other places, especially Ireland and, and, and Britain, uh, when they all settled on the island, they realized they needed some sort of political organization. So around the year uh, 930, the Icelanders all got together. They said, right, we need to have a sort of political uh, assembly. We're going to have self-governance. We need to be able to sort of enforce our laws and our rules. We're going to establish a thing or an assembly point. 
Uh, and they do it, at the, you can still go there uh, in, in Iceland today. It's a place called Thangvatlir. Um, interestingly enough, it's you can actually see the tectonic plates of North America and uh, Europe actually meeting at this place. It's, it's a really and have you been? I'm guessing you've been. Oh, yeah, 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 several times. <laughs> um, there's nothing there now. Um, and, but it's curious to also note that in, in the Middle Ages, when this was a functional institution, um, it only occurred, right, you only had a thing uh, when people assembled together, which only happened once a year. Uh, so people from all over Iceland would come, gather together for a couple of weeks, sort out their, their um, legal squabbles, and then... <laughs> the thing was was dissolved. So as far as things and objects and assemblages, I think that's a really poignant example that really kind of narrows in on this idea of objects as a type of assemblage. Here we have an assemblage of, of people and the various trappings that they're bringing together uh, in order to, to, to solve their problems. Yeah, I think we're hitting at some words and maybe we can bring out a few more buzzwords or keywords. We've said assemblage, we've said gathering, you've brought up thing. And so what I'm being reminded of is, oh, help, uh, help me out, uh, Brown. Oh, Bill Brown. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bill Brown. <laughs> things in motion, talking about things in motion, which is, I think, another important phrase that we could throw out in terms of what new materialism is concerned with or what a material approach is really trying to get at would be looking at things in motion. So to go back to my relic example, something that is moving and connecting a queen or a kingdom in one region, that is Jerusalem, with other communities and regions across the Mediterranean over in Italy. So things in motion, I think. Any other words that we should, or phrases that have been really helpful in your work that we could throw out and bring up now? Yeah, so we've already talked about assemblage. We've already, well, I guess we could talk about uh, agency uh, mm -hmm. a little bit more. I've given some 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 cursory definitions of how that works, and I'm, I'm sure it will come back up. But broadly speaking, um, agency is, at least for me in my own research, um, an object's ability to resist human objectification, as it were, right? So to resist uh, being a tool or a prop. Um, and uh, Bill Brown, who you already mentioned, gives a really uh, poignant explanation of this. He says, we, we begin to encounter the thingness of objects, the agency of objects when they stop working for us, right? So broken objects, broken things seem to be able to do this kind of resistance material. Uh, and that's a really fascinating aspect, I think, of, of agency to me, um, as well as, as an object's ability to affect um, behavior. So I wonder, uh, Anna, in, in your experience studying these queens of Jerusalem, are there objects that come up, relics or otherwise, that have this sort of broken nature or do this kind of resistance work? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I love this question because it is challenging, but I think a really important one. And the most obvious answer I can start with is the resistance of the object comes when it no longer physically exists, which is, I think, mm. the biggest play of object resistance. So one thing I'm particularly fascinated with right now is a relic of the true cross that Queen Sybil, who ruled from 1186 until her death in 1190, so a very short reign. Um, so unfortunately, that means we know less about her. 
and less material culture survives because it was such a short reign. But there is a relic of the true cross, which she seems to have sent from Jerusalem to northern Italy. But we don't know about this from a physical record, because as far as I can tell, unless it's hiding in some random family home in northern <laughs> Italy, which who knows, could always be possible, and that would be wonderful. But Tucked away as, somewhere in the Vatican vaults. <laughs> exactly. But uh, as far as I can tell, it's it's gone. It's no longer in a church repository or in any museum collection, which is unfortunate. So that is one way in which the object has resisted, because it is no longer physically present to be viewed, to be touched, to be part of the liturgy, to physically continue to perpetuate her memory. It's it's gone. So that's mm-hmm. one striking example of of an object that has resisted because it's no longer there. So I wonder, in your work in literature, how do objects do that resistance work? And I think I have a two-part question. Do they how do they resist characters in the text? But then also, can they do resistance work for the medieval reader slash listener who's encountering this text? So is there a two-part resistance perhaps at play in what you've encountered? Yeah, no, it's a it's a very good, <laughs> it's a really interesting question and not an easy one to answer. So I'll give, I'll, I'll, I'll give, I guess my my quick overview. So when I've had students ask me about this type of resistance work within literature and within the medieval Scandinavian mythological and legendary corpus, the example that always springs to my mind, the one that really sort of seems to, to encapsulate this idea of resistance is cursed objects. So one of the most prominent examples we have from the Scandinavian Middle Ages within uh, saga literature um, and legendary saga literature in particular is a sword called Tiafing. And it pops up in a very famous legendary saga uh, called the saga of Hervir och Heidrix. Uh, so saga of Hervir and Heidrix. And in this, there is a uh, sword Tiafing uh, that we are told is forged by dwarves in, in you know, ages long past and it is the best sword ever. If you use it, you're going to win every battle uh, that you that you fight. A catch is that every time you draw it from its scabbard, it has to uh, it has to draw blood. And that seems, at least at first, like it'd be a pretty good thing, right? If you've got a sword, you want to use it for this particular act of of going out and waging war uh, on people. Like, yeah, you definitely want your sword to be doing that. The difficulty comes when the sword gets drawn inadvertently or without thought, um, especially when characters are not actually engaged in battle. So there's a really poignant scene in one of the versions of this saga um, where two brothers are walking along and one brother wants to see the sword, he pulls it out. But because of the curse laid upon this, this object, he is forced to undertake, he's, he's almost compelled through some sort of magic or otherwise uh, to kill his brother as the only other person who's around. So in this way, um, the sword is really resisting characters and the way they want to be using uh, that object as a tool for their for their own ends. As far as audiences, though, are, are concerned, as far as this resistance goes, I think that becomes a lot, uh, a lot more tricky at a, at a literary level. But the way that I sometimes think about it is the ways in which 
mythological narratives and objects within uh, mythological narratives can be obscure or, or, or hard to, to understand because they're so abstract. So in the mythological uh, origins of, of the world, right? So in Old Norse myth, uh, we're told that um, time before time, there was a uh, giant that was floating in, in sort of nebulous space he eventually gets killed by the gods, dismembered, and his body parts get used to create the universe. Right, so his skull, you know, uh, becomes the becomes the heavens. Um, his brains become the clouds. His bones become the mountains. All of these sort of things, and that's intelligible, I suppose, within the context of a particular narrative. But one does wonder if there would have been some sort of resistance among uh, an audience consuming this this myth, who would have wondered, okay, well how how good of an explanation of the world as, <laughs> as it is is this you know like okay you know the heavens coming out of a head i guess that makes sense the head is above the the body you know the heavens are above the earth i guess that can make sense but to to what extent this would have been uh you know consumed as, as gospel I, I do wonder so i there's an element of resistance i think that crops up just from that uh perhaps ambiguity or or symbolism mm -hmm. i wonder thinking about the different examples we've brought forward. So I've been coming back to relics, these Christian relics. And in the example you just brought up in the literature you're working with, you brought up the example of the sword. So I wonder if there's a question here in terms of new materialism and particularly in terms of the question of agency, which is, mm -hmm. I know something, as you've said earlier, something you come back to and are continually thinking about. If there's a question of and I don't know if I'm about to pose it as a sharp binary, but I don't necessarily conceive of it as such, but of sacred objects versus secular objects or of these Christian relics versus a sword you're encountering. Are there differences here or are there things we can talk about when it comes to agency? Because the thing I'm thinking of is in some scholarship when we're talking about materialism and sacred objects in a Christian sense, in a medieval Christian sense, is the question of the agency of God. And is it ultimately going back to this relic is, yes, it's an object and it's moving and it's connecting and it's radiant and gold and doing this work, but it's ultimately channeling the power of God and bringing that forward in the space. And one word is it, it's inspirited or filled with the power of God. So then that mm -hmm. models the agency. And that's that's the thought I'm throwing out right now. I I suppose are there differences that you and I are encountering, and how how do we deal with that? Yeah, so I think there are definitely differences uh, in in this capacity, and I I, I want to return momentarily to 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 discuss relics at, at at greater length, especially within the context of your own research. Um, but I find it fascinating within the pre-Christian mythological material uh, that we have no evidence that there were relics or relic culture uh, in Scandinavia in this way, which is really, really odd given mm -hmm. some of the narratives from uh, Norse mythology we have. So we have uh, stories about uh, the god Odin, who was a god of wisdom and war, plucking out his eye and pledging this to gain wisdom. Uh, we have narratives about the god Tyr, who's a god of justice and war, uh, sacrificing his hand to, to secure peace. Um, and you know, within a within a Christian context, one would sort of immediately go, okay, well, where are the relics there? You know, like if we, <laughs> if we have a story about 
somebody important, you know, uh, plucking out an eye or losing a hand, right? You know, one one almost would anticipate it. Um, in the pre-Christian material, we have no evidence that that ever happened. Um, really, the only sort of relics that we get popping up are after Christianity uh, becomes commonplace in Scandinavia. And then these relics are only ever, you know, within the traditional uh, Christian context of, of, of bishops and other holy people, or occasionally legendary figures um, mm. who seem to be, you know, just uh, just acceptable enough, right? They're not they're not totally tied to this pre-Christian tradition, so it seems as though you can get away with them. So um, we get told about a legendary figure stuck out of the um, who apparently loses some teeth in a fight, and we have a record of somebody going around in Scandinavia and saying, "Hey, look at the look at the teeth I have this legendary figure." So I think I think that might be a counterpoint between the the two types of cultures we're looking at uh, and the two types of material cultures uh, that we're looking at across these times and across these places. So. But I, I want to return back to your to your research on relics, because I just find it so fascinating, and it seems like such a, an important thing uh, for medievalists to consider. I guess what I'm curious about is, do you, as a uh, as a materialist, draw a distinction between the uh, agency or uh, the the sort of categorization of different types of relics because there seems to me to be a big difference between a relic like you know fragment of the true cross or a body relic of you know a, a you know saint's finger bone or something those two things seem very different uh, to me and i wonder if you have any any thoughts or if this is a consideration you've, you've made in your own research no that's an interesting question and what I say might be somewhat of a cop-out because one, <laughs> most of the relics I'm encountering are relics of the true cross. So mm -hmm. in terms of these women, and there's more work to be done as I keep hunting for other bits of evidence of their material culture. But what I'm encountering from Queen Sybil, whom I mentioned, is her gift of a relic is a relic of the true cross. And her father, King Omri, also sent relics of the true cross and other kings before him, various Baldwins, sent relics of the true cross. And then from earlier than the kings of Jerusalem or the rulers of Jerusalem and continuing during their reign and past, you have relics of the true cross coming from the Byzantine emperor in Constantinople. So thus far, the class of relics I'm dealing with are particularly relics of the true cross, which are a very powerful an evocative object to be sending from the Holy Land as an object, let's go back to a gathering, that can ingather mm -hmm. multiple meanings of the Salvific landscape whence it's coming and being sent to France, Italy, what have you. So that Salvific meaning that it's gathering in, but also its imperial connotations of previous examples of famously Empress Helena, who in the fourth century, sources say, discovered the, the true cross and herself sent fragments to Jerusalem and Constantinople. Mm. And then also moving later, Emperor Heraclius, who recovered the relic of the true cross and brought it back. So that is what I'm engaging with in terms of you brought up, let's say, a relic of the true cross versus a fragment of a foot or mm -hmm. some other body part, sometimes called speaking reliquaries. 
there's such a big bibliography on relics and these different types. Cynthia Hahn is a big one who comes to mind, as well as Beata Freaky. And then there's a particular reliquary at Conk, the statue of Saint Foy. And Bissera Pencheva has just started this huge project on that. And I think while they're different fragments, be it a bit of wood or a bit of bone from some various body parts, I think the questions that scholars are ultimately asking are getting at the same things in terms of the agency or the channeling of God, of the materiality of the gold, of the gems, of any material flux when it's activated by candlelight or by choir singing around it, of these networks of connecting bishops and monks and royal figures and of moving places um, or of being stolen, if we think of Patrick Geary's work and the thieves involved in these networks. So I think ultimately the true cross really has this signifying power of the Holy Land and of Christian imperial might. But ultimately, I think these different types of relics are really engaging with these same questions and are part of the same conversation. You know, it's interesting that you were used this word symbol to me because this is one of the the, the questions I had prepared for you. <laughs> um, you know, so the moment you started talking about the true cross, to me, I, I immediately thought of um, that very famous quote from uh, Erasmus, who who remarked, so I'm paraphrasing, but, mm-hmm. you know, said, uh, Christ must have been crucified on a whole forest of trees. There are that many, you know, shards of the true cross <laughs> around Europe at the time, you know, in which he said this. And um, it's curious to me then, because it, then from from everything you've you've just explained, it sounds then that the, the material uh, nature of relics like fragments of the true cross um that their agency lies less in whether or not you know we can we can prove that they were actually sourced mm. from you know the, the the cross that you know christ bore and was crucified on but more in their ability to create networks of community throughout uh throughout europe and i i wondered if that remark you know make makes any sense to you um if you have any if you have any any thoughts about the type of work then that these communities of even relic collectors um are are doing yeah i'm i'm not sure if it's a relic is uh, let me see if i can paraphrase what you, what you just presented to me if a relic has more meaning or signification not for its quote unquote authenticity as coming from the holy land but rather for the networks is cre- it's creating. Is that is that what the the distinction yeah, yeah, you're getting at? Yeah, yes, yeah. that's a, a much more distilled. <laughs> no, I just want to make sure I understand. I think I think we see both, and I think it depends on the particular audience, and I think it depends on what forms of legitimation or meaning they have access to, depending on their particular context, and but depending on the relic itself. So. In terms of, to go back to relics of the true cross, in terms of authentication, quote unquote, or verification of its quote unquote authenticity, on a reliquary, we can often see images of Helena discovering the true cross. And so that visual play on the reliquary would be a form of legitimizing its provenance from the Holy Land as this historical 
Christian historical moment. So that's a form of authentic authentication of of its provenance from the Holy Land. And then inscriptions telling the story can also do that work. But I think it also does gain meaning in terms of the networks it's involved in. And one way that it demonstrates this is if we turn to the liturgy. And if we go back to gathering and assemblage, one thing a relic brings to itself is the Christian liturgy and any new feasts that were inaugurated. So one example, um, and in crusade studies, I think the most popular example of a true cross relic is one from the first quarter of the 12th century, because it it passes through different people. And it, it's really fascinating because it brings together lots of different people and institutions. So there was a relic of the true cross from that the king of Georgia then gave to his wife, the queen consort, who then ended up becoming an abbess in a monastery in Jerusalem. And we don't we don't know which monastery, but she wound up in Jerusalem. And then faced with famine, she sold the relic, or I think I think sold the relic to Ancelis, who's the cantor, who was the cantor of the Holy Sepulchre, who then in turn gifted this same relic to the community of monks at Notre Dame in Paris, where he originated. And he gifted this relic to seal a bond of prayer between the two communities, one in Jerusalem and one in France. And then in response, the community in France inaugurated this new feast that brought this true cross relic to the center. So in that example, this network of royal figures, of monastic figures, of men and women, of individuals and communities is really key to telling the story of this object. And uh, Miriam Rita Tessera is the one who has really drawn out a lot. And there are other scholars as well. I think Cecilia Gaposchkin talks about the liturgy that came about. So, so I think on the one hand, that authenticity is still important, depending on the particular example we have. But then I think the networks can also be really important, depending on the particular example we're looking at. I think it depends. It can sometimes mm. be a both and an and or an either or. And it's just, you have to focus on that particular object and see see what comes out, see what's being teased out from it. I'm curious, um, within these networks of exchange that you've you've just given some examples of, is, is there a sense in these networks, um, a sense of, is there a sense of reciprocity, I guess? Because immediately, when I think of, I think you said uh, one of the relics was given as a gift several times, and that immediately makes me think of uh, Mouse's work on gift giving and the sort of obligation mm -hmm. that gift giving creates. Um, does that sort of reciprocal relationship? Does that sense of obligation seem to occur in the examples that, that you've just given us of the, the exchange of these these relics? Yes, I love this question. And I would I would say yes. I think uh, to give another example of a female figure in the kingdom of Jerusalem sending a relic, this was from Iveta, who was an abbess at the monastery of St. Lazarus at Bethany. So she did not become one of the reigning queens but she was a member of these, this royal family, if you will. And she was the great aunt of Sybil, whom I mentioned earlier, who sent a relic to Italy. And we have, again, nothing physically surviving as far as I can tell if I'm speaking correctly, but we have a textual reference to it of her sending multiple relics 
um, including a relic of the True Cross, to the Abbey of Fontevraud in France. And what she got in return, so to think about gift theory or this exchange model or a model of reciprocity, is she sent this object and got in return prayers in her name for her salvation of her soul, for the perpetuation of her memory, and prayers for those of her parents. So that that's an example of sending this tangible relic gift and then receiving something more intangible, but still very important in return, the the counter gift, if you will, of these prayers um, for Iveta and for her family. To give another example of a relic that's sent as a gift and then as a request, though, for something more, quote unquote, tangible military aid or money, um, there's an example, Anna Comena who recorded the Byzantine princess, who recorded the deeds of her father, records a moment where her father, the emperor Alexius Komenos, sent, among other extravagant gifts, a cross, a true cross relic. Um, And he sent this relic gift to Henry IV explicitly as a request for Henry IV's assistance against the Norman Robert Guiscard. So in that example, we see relics playing a crucial role and as something that's very much part of this gift theory of asking for a counter gift and then of inaugurating this never-ending cycle of giving and receiving and giving and receiving. So Anna, to wrap up, I think we should discuss the applicability of new materialism outside of the Middle Ages, the sort of so what in defense of our blue curtains. And I, I think you and I differ a little bit on this on this point. Yeah, and I think, so you're bringing up the applicability beyond the Middle Ages, and I might turn it on its head a bit and bring it to what for me is something I think about, which is perhaps the problematics of new materialism. And I think that being informed by doing medieval history today. So I think for me, sometimes from the perspective of living in 2023, and having witnessed or gone through or read about a lot of cataclysmic events that deal with real live people and communities, especially marginalized communities, I think I sometimes pause and wonder, even in a medieval source space, what it means and if it's problematic to step aside from the people, the real people who were populating the Middle Ages, and take so centrally this focus on the objects and on the material. And yeah, I think I just, from 2023, I wonder about this shifting in my work, which sometimes feels like a shift dramatically um, away from people and instead towards objects. And of course, our whole conversation now has been about the interplay and (laughs) objects as things and objects interacting with people and the networks they're creating and forging. But I still sometimes pause and think about that reworking and think about that shifting of lens that I'm doing. Yeah, I really appreciate that that problematization there. I think it's it's something I I definitely need to consider more in my in my own research. So it's 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 a really fascinating take. I guess though for me, if if I was just to to trumpet the the virtues, I think of of, mm-hmm. of its applicability, especially because so much of what I do in centering. Uh, my research on myth and specifically myths that seem to, to 
in this uncanny way, um, combine the body and the natural environment, the inanimate world uh, together in a larger continuum. Um, I guess what, what appears relevant and, and poignant to me in 2023 is the intersection between material culture, individuals, and, and the environment. I think mm. a lot of our political conversation, a lot of our conversation concerning policy, um, especially as it relates to things like global warming, often comes down to this very sort of Cartesian idea that uh, we as humans are separate from our environment. We're somehow outside and and above it in, in some way. And, um, you know, to, to reiterate a point I brought up earlier in the show, this approach that Bruno Latour takes in saying, you know, this this mentality of a separation between the human and the the non-human, the animate and the uh, the the inanimate, the environment and 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 the human, um, doesn't really seem to be as prevalent in pre-modern you know, medieval societies. And I think that's something that that can be constructive for us to consider in our own uh, discussions about pressing issues like like global warming. Um, I, and I think in some ways the, the beauty of this applicability is it shows a continuum um, or a connection between the kind of debates and, and ideas that we're having today in 2023 and the type of things that uh, medieval people were concerned with. And I think both of those those perspectives can can be helpful in in informing us going forward into the future. If you're interested in any aspect of our conversation today, please feel free to go to the website for the Multicultural Middle Ages and check out the selective bibliography that we've assembled for this episode, which includes Liam's recent publication on myth and new materialism as well as a link to Anna's upcoming talk on Queen Sybil from the perspective of her material culture. This has been an episode of the Multicultural Middle Ages, an anthology-style podcast series brought to you by the Graduate Student Committee of the Medieval Academy of America. Season 2 was produced by Will Beattie, Jonathan Correa-Reyes, Reed O'Mara, and Logan Quigley. Music is by Anna O'Connell.